Podcastle 118 for August 17th, 2010. Sugar by Cat Rambo. Rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Sugar by Cat Rambo. And to provide a proper introduction for this story, I need to start by giving you a glimpse into the back office operations here at PodCastle. One of our key organizational tools is a Google spreadsheet that tracks upcoming stories, who the narrator is, and who's doing the intro, stuff like that. Most of the time, my only interaction with that document is when I'm checking the column that lists the specific dates my intros are due, and even then I'm usually looking to see just exactly how late I am and how humble the apologies to my podcasting overlords need to be. Sometimes, though, I'll have a peek just to see what Dave and Anna have coming down the pipe. And if there are stories that I recognize, stories about which I might have some kind of interesting comment to make, then I'll email Dave and Anna and say, hey, how's about I do the intro for that one? I promise I won't turn it in late this time for reals. Sugar was one of those stories. First of all, it's a simply wonderful piece of fiction. I've heard Cat Rambo read it before, and I really admire the way she uses bold world building to support such a delicate love story. Secondly, as a diabetic, my own relationship with sugar, the substance, is troubled. Except for one very special kind of sugar. That is, my dog, a yellow lab named Sugar Cookie, who everyone just calls Sugar. At exactly 7.30 a.m. every morning, she starts getting antsy. If I'm still asleep, she'll start licking my hand, face, toes, or any other exposed body part that might reasonably be expected to wake me if licked. If I'm already awake, she'll come over and lay down beside me, her big brown eyes silently pleading. She releases long, wistful sighs that eventually become petulant whimpers. If I so much as move a muscle in the direction of the door, she launches into celebratory acrobatics that would put a Cirque du Soleil performer to shame. It is entirely thanks to her psychotic persistence that I get off my lazy butt every day and go for a long walk, which means I'm probably the only diabetic in the world for whom high doses of sugar are therapeutic. Which all brings me back to the story, Sugar by Cat Rambo, because the story similarly explores the strange and contradictory curveballs that life sometimes throws at us, and how healing often comes not by magic, but through things so familiar we don't see how special they really are. Cat Rambo's stories have appeared in Asimov's and Strange Horizons and have been featured on Escape Pod and here at PodCastle. Eyes Like Sky and Coal and Moonlight, her latest collection of stories, is available at Amazon. She's also managing editor of Fantasy Magazine, which can be read at www.fantasy-magazine.com. You can find out more at her website, www.kittywumpus.net, and she blogs at catrambo.livejournal.com. The story is read by Rachel Swirsky, who you all know, of course, as the former editor of PodCastle. Rachel recently attended Launchpad, which is a free NASA-funded workshop for established writers held in beautiful high-altitude Laramie, Wyoming. Launchpad aims to provide a crash course for the attendees in modern astronomy science through guest lectures and observation through the University of Wyoming's professional telescopes. She's live-blogged the whole experience, and if you're interested, you should check out her posts at Rachel dash swirsky.livejournal.com and sugar cookie says enjoy the story sugar speak good dog sugar by cat rambo they line up before lorana 
Forty baked clay heads atop forty bodies built of metal cylinders. Each year she casts and fires new heads to replace those lost to weather, the wild, or simple erosion. She rarely replaces the metal bodies. They are scuffed and battered, over a century old. Every morning, the island sun beating down on her pale scalp, she stands on the maison's porch with the golems before her, motionless, expressionless. She chants. The music and the words fly into the clay heads and keep them thinking. The golems are faster just after they've been charged. They move more lightly, with more precision, with more joy. Without the daily chant, they could go perhaps three days at most, depending on the heaviness of their labors. This month is cane planting season. She delegates the squads of laborers and sets some to carrying buckets from the spring to water the new cane shoots while others dig furrows. The roof needs re-shingling, but it can wait until the planting season is past. As the golems shuffle off, she pauses to water the flowering bushes along the front of the house. Placing her fingertips together, she conjures a tiny rain cloud, wringing moisture from the air. Warm drops collect on the leaves, rolling down to darken pink and gray bark to red and black. Inside, the house is quiet. The three servants are in the kitchen, cooking breakfast and gossiping. She comes up to the doorway like a ghost, half fearing what she will hear. Nothing but small, inconsequential things. Jeanette says when she takes her freedom payment, she will ask for a barrel of rum and go sell it in the street, three silver pieces a cup, over at St. Tigris, the pirate city. She has a year to go in the sorceress's service. Daniel has been here a year and has four more to go. He is still getting used to the golems, still eyes them warily when he thinks no one can see him. He is thin and wiry, and his face is pockmarked and scarred by the flame plague. He was lucky to escape the old continent with his life. Lucky to live here now, and he knows it. Tante Isabel has been with her since the woman was thirteen. Now she's eighty-five. Frail as one of the butterflies that moves through the Bougainvillea. A black beak snap and the butterfly will be gone. She sits, peeling cubes of ginger, which she will boil with sugar and lime juice to make sweet syrup that can flavor tea or conjure to ice. If you sell rum, everyone will think you're selling what lies between your thighs as well, she says, eyeing Jeanette. Jeanette shrugs and tosses her head. Maybe I'd make even more that way, she says, ignoring Daniel's blush. Tante Isabel looks up to see Lorana standing there. The old woman's smile is sweet as sunshine, sweet as sugar. The sorceress stands in the doorway, and the three servants smile at her as they always do, at their beautiful mistress. No thought ever crosses their minds of betraying or displeasing her. It never occurs to them to wonder why. Christina is a pirate. She wears bright calicos stolen from Indian traders and works on a ship that travels in lazy shark-like loops around the lesser and greater southern isles, looking for strays from the treasure fleet and duchy merchants. The merchants, based in the southernmost new continent port of Tabat, prey on the more impoverished colonies, taking their entire crops in return for food and tools. The treasure fleet is part of a vast, corrupt network fed by springs of gold. This is what Christina tells Lorana how she justifies her profession of blood and watery death. 
When Christina comes to San Tigre, she goes to the inn and sends one of the pigeons the innkeeper keeps on the roof. It flies to Lorana's window. She leaves her maison and sails the port in a small skiff, standing all the way from one island to another, sea winds whipping around her. She focuses her will and asks the air sylphs, who she normally does not converse with, to bear her to her lover's scarlet and orange-clad arms. Tiny golden hoops, each set with a charm created by Lorana, are set in Christina's right ear. One is a tiny glass fish, protection against drowning, and the other is a silver lightning bolt to ward off storms. Christina likes to order large meals when she comes ashore. Her crew hunts on the unsettled islands and catches the wild cattle and hogs so abundant there to eke out their income. They sell the excess fat and hides to smugglers who fill these islands. She is not meat-starved now, but wants sugary treats, confections of butter and sweet, washed down with raw swallows of rum here in the harbor, where she can be safely drunk. Pretty farmer, she says now. She touches the sorceress's hair, which was black as Christina's once, but which has gone silver with age, despite her unlined skin and her clear, brilliant blue eyes. Pretty pirate, Lorana replies. She spends the evening buying drinks for Christina and her crew. The pirates count on her deep pockets, rich with gold from selling sugar. Sometimes they try to sell her things plundered on their travels, ritual components, scrolls, or trinkets laden with spells. The only present Christina ever brought her was a waxed and knotted cord strung with knobby, pearly shells. It hangs on her bedchamber wall where the full moon's light can polish it each month. Lorana brings Christina presents. Fresh strawberries and fuzzy nectarines from her greenhouse. In Santigra, she trades sugar for bushels of chocolate beans and packets of spices. Someday, when circumstances have changed, she would like Christina to spend a day or two at the plantation. Jeanette would outdo herself with the meals, flaky pastries, and flowers of spun sugar. It's time to send for a new cook, she thinks. It will take months to post the message, and then for the new arrival to appear, and even more time for Jeanette to train her in the ways of the kitchen, and how to tell the golems to fetch and carry. Someone leans forward to ask her a question. It is a new member of Christina's crew, curious about the rumors of her plantation. Human slaves are doomed to failure, she says. Look what happened on Banbur. Discontented servants burned the fields and overtook the town there, turning their masters and mistresses out into the underbrush, or setting them to labor. And, she adds, whites do badly in this climate. I can take care of myself and my household, but it's easier not to worry about my automatons growing ill or dying. Although they did, after a fashion. They wore away, their features blurred with erosion. They cracked and crumbled, first the noses, then the lips and brows, their eyes becoming pitted shadows, their molded hair a mottling of cracks. Time to redecorate soon, she thought. She did it every few decades. She would send a letter, and eventually a company representative would show up, consult with her, and then vanish back to Jabat, soon replaced by rolls of new wallpaper and carpets, crates of china and porcelain wash basins. She looks at Christina and pictures her against blue silk sheets, olive skin gleaming in the candle glow. Later they fall into bed together, and she stays there for two hours before she rises, despite her lover's muffled, sleepy protests, and takes her skiff back to her own island. Overhead the sky is a black bowl set with glittering layers of stars, grainy as sandstone and striated with light. Moonlight dapples the waves, so dark and impenetrable that they look like polished jet. At home she goes upstairs. 
A passage cuts across the house, running north to south to take advantage of the trade wind, and open squares at the top of each room partition let the wind through. Bridomart's is the northernmost room. The air smells of dawn and sugar. Sugar, sweet and translucent as Bridomart's skin. The color of snowdrifts, laid on cool white linen. The other woman's ivory hair, which matches Lorana's, is spread out across the pillow. Tonight, her face is unmasked. Lorana does not flinch away from the pitted eyes, the face more eroded than any golems. Outside in the courtyard, the black and white death birds hop up and down in the branches, making the crimson flowers shake in the early morning light. Pleasant trip, Britomart says. Lorana's answer is noncommittal. Sometimes her old lover is kind, but she is prone to lashing out in sudden anger. Lorana does not blame her for that. Her death is proving neither painless nor particularly short. But it is coming, nonetheless. A month? A year? Longer? Lorana's not sure. How long have they been locked in this conversation? It has been less than six months so far, she knows. But it seems like forever. She goes back to her room. The bed is turned down, and a hot brick has been slipped between the sheets to warm them. A bouquet of ginger sits on the table near the lamp, spreading out its bold perfume. She lies in bed and fails to sleep. Bridomart's face floats before her in the darkness. She's unsure if she's dreaming or really seeing it. She wonders if she remembers it as worse than it really is. But she doesn't. Two weeks later, the pigeon at her window. Christina has a bandage around her upper arm. Nothing much, she says. Carelessness in battle. She pushes Lorana away, though apologetically. Rather than sleep together, they stay awake and talk. It is their first conversation of any length. Two hours after their first meeting in the San Tigre market, they had fallen into bed together. Four months ago. So she's sick, your friend? Christina asks. You were raised here in the islands, Lorana answers. You know what it was like in the old country. In the space of three years, sorcerers destroyed two continents. Everyone decided to make their power play at once. They called dragons up out of the earth and set them at killing. The flame plague moved from town to town, entire villages, up like candles. Millions died. The earth itself was charred and burned. Magic stripped from it. Some fought with elementals, others with summoned winds and fogs, but others with poisoned magic. She pours herself more wine. Christina's skin is paler than usual, but the lantern light in the room gleams on it as though it were flower petals. And you were here, Christina prompts. I was here in the islands, preparing to go. I heard that Britomart had blundered into someone else's trap and was dying of it. I brought her down. The magic is clean here, and there are serendipities and artifacts. I hoped to heal her. But that hasn't happened. The wine is mulled with cinnamon and clove and sugar that is not completely dissolved, a gritty sweet residue at the cup's bottom. No, she says, that hasn't happened. Christina smuggles Lorana onto her ship while it's at harbor. She and three other sailors are supposed to be watching it. Lorana sits with them drinking shots of rum until the yellow moon swings itself up over the prow, its face broad and grinning as a baby's. It reminds her of a Britomart and her tears well up. She savors the moment, for magic removes almost all capacity to weep. She nudges Christina and points to the distant reef. Out on the rocks, mermaids cluster, fishy eyes shining in the moonlight, fleshy gills pulsing like tide pool creatures, shuddered closed by the light. She kisses Christina as they watch, 
Eventually, the two climb into Christina's bunk for frantic, slippery, drunken lovemaking, careful of the still-healing arm. She leaves in the small hours, past the stairs of the mermaids. It is still planting season, and the golems work at night. When she first came to the island, she tried yellow-flowered Sea Island cotton, then indigo and ginger. With the arrival from the Wizards College of Tabat of schematics for three roller mills and copper furnace pots, sugarcane has become the crop of choice. Her workers perform the labor that must be undertaken day and night, when the cane is ready to be harvested and transmuted into sugar and molasses. She makes rum, too, and ships barrels of it along with the molasses casks and thick cones of molded muscovado sugar to San Tigre, which consumes or trades all she can supply. Most sorcerers are not strong enough to animate so many golems. She has the largest plantation in this area. Others, though, have followed her lead, although on a smaller scale. It took decades for them to realize how steadily she was making money, despite the depredations of the Dutch merchants or the pirates they paid to disrupt the Aztec shipping trade. She had been to the old continent before all the trouble, two years learning science at a school where she had met Britomart, who was an actual princess as well as a sorceress. She had been centuries old when she met Britomart, but she had dared to hope that here was her soulmate, the person who would stay by her side over all the centuries to come. But, in the end, she wanted to return to her island, full of new techniques and machineries that she thought would improve the yield, rotating fields and planting those lying fallow with clover to be plowed into the soil to enrich it for planting, plans for a windmill to be built to the southeast, facing into the wind channeled through the mountains, with sails made of wooden frames tied with canvas, lenses placed together that allowed one to observe the phases of heaven and the moons that surrounded other planets, and the accompanying elegant Copernican theories to explain their movements. She swore to Brutamart that she would return by the next rainy season, and she kept her promise. But by then the trap had been sprung, and Brutamart had begun to rot away, victim of a magic left by a man who had died two weeks previously. "'You're ready to be rid of me,' Brutamart says. "'Of course not.' "'It's true. You are.' She goes about the room, conjuring breezes and positioning them to blow across the bed's expanse. "'You are.' Brittemart whispers, I would be. Two breezes collide at the center of the bed. Brittemart wants it cold, ever colder. It slows the decay, perhaps. Lorana isn't sure of that, either. Outside, she sees that the golems are nearly done with the southeast field. One more to go after that. She glances over the building, tallying up the things to be done. Roof, trimming back the bushes, exercising the horse she had thought Brittemart would ride. Half a mile away is the beach shore. Her skiff is pulled up there, tied to a rock. Standing beside it, she can see the smudge of Santigra on the horizon. She is so tired that she aches to her bones. Somewhere, deep inside her, she is aware there is an endless well of sorrow, but she is simply too weary to pay it any mind. It is one of the peculiarities of mages that they can compartmentalize themselves and put away emotions, never to be touched again. She does this now, rousing herself, and prepares to go on. She has a pact with the universe, which told her long ago when she became a sorceress, nothing will be asked that cannot be endured. So she soldiers on like her workers, marching through the days. She is still tired a week later. Go to her. Go to her, Brittemart says. I don't care. You don't have much time with her. I have even less with you, Lorana says. But Brittemart still turns away. It is the harvesting season's end, 
Outside in the evening, some of the golems are in the boiling house, where three boilers sit over the furnace, cooking the sugarcane sap. The syrup passes from boiler to boiler until, at last, it begins to crystallize into muscovado. Two golems pack it into clay sugar molds and set the molds in the distillery so the molasses will drain away. In the distillery, more golems walk across the mortar and cobble floor in which copper cauldrons are set for molasses collection, undulating channels feeding them the liquid. They mix cane juice into the brew before casking it. In a few months, it will be distilled into fiery raw rum and sold to the taverns in the pirate city. She goes and fetches her notebook and sits in the room with Brittemart, her pen scratching away to record the day's labors, the number of rows harvested, and making out a list of necessities for her next trip to Santigra. She estimates 2,000 pounds of sugar this year, 300 casks of molasses, and another 200 of rum. Recently, she received word that the sorcerer Carnuba, whose plantation is three days south, renovated his sugar mill to process lime juice. Lime juice is an excellent scurvy preventative, and much in demand. She wonders how long it would take a newly planted grove to fruit. Her pen dances across the page, calculating raw material costs and the best forms of transportation. Is she pretty? Bridemart asks. Her face is still turned away. Lorana considers. Yes, she says. As pretty as I was. The anguish in the whisper forces Lorana to put down her pen. She takes Brittemart's hands in hers. They are untouched by the disease, the nails sleek and shiny and well-groomed. Hands like the necks of swans, or white doves arching over the gleam of water. Never that pretty, she says. The next morning, Lorana goes through the room, touching each charm to stillness until the lace curtains no longer flutter, until there is no sound in the room, except for her own breathing, and the warbling calls of the death birds clustering among the blossoms of the bougainvillea tree outside. She hears a fluttering from her room, a pigeon that has joined the dozen others on the windowsill, but she ignores it, as she ignored the earlier arrivals. She sits beside the bed, listening, listening. But the figure on the bed does not take another breath, no matter how long she listens. All through that day, the golems labor boiling sugar. Jeanette brings her lemonade, and the new girl, Madeline, has made biscuits. She drinks the sweet liquid and looks at the dusty wallpaper. The thought of changing it stuns her with the energy it would require. She will sit here, she thinks, until she dies, and dust will collect on her and the wallpaper alike. Still, when dinner time comes, she goes downstairs, and under Tante Isabel's watchful eye, she pushes some food around on her plate. Daniel cannot help but be a little thankful that Brittemart is dead, she thinks. He was the one who emptied her chamber pot and endured her abuse when she set him to fetching and carrying. The thought makes her speak sharply to him as he serves the chowder the new girl has made. He looks bewildered by her tone and slinks away. She regrets the moment as soon as it passed, but has no reason for calling him back. Upstairs, the ranks of pigeons have swollen by two or three more. She lies on the bed, fully clothed, and stares at the ceiling. The next morning, she takes two golems from their labors to carry Brittemart's body for her. 
They dig the grave on a high slope of the mountain overlooking the bay. It is a fine view, she thinks. One Britomart would have liked. When they have finished, she stands with her palms turned upward to the sky, calling clouds to come seething on the wind. They collect, darkening like burning sugar. When they are at the perfect, furious boil, she brings lightning down from them to smash the stone that stands over the grave. She does it over and over again, carving Britomart's name in deep and angry, blackened letters. At home, she goes to lie in bed again. One by one, the golems grind to a stop at their labors, and the sap boils over in thick black smoke. They stand wherever their energy gave out, but all manage in their last moments to bring their limbs in towards their torsos, standing like stalks of stillness. It may be the smoke that draws Christina. She arrives, knocks on the door, and comes inside, brushing past the servants. Without knowing the house, she manages to come upstairs to Lorana's bedroom. Lorana does not look over at the door. Christina comes to the bed and lies down beside the sorceress. She looks around at the bedroom, at the string of shells hanging on the wall, but says nothing. She strokes Lorana's ivory hair with a soft hand, until the tears begin. Outside, the golems grind to life again as the rain starts. They collect the burned vats and trundle them away. They cask the most recent rum and set the casks on wooden racks to ferment. They put the plantation into order and finish the last of their labors. Then, as the light of day fades, muffled by the steady rain, they arrange themselves again, closing themselves away, readying for tomorrow. Welcome back. Kind of a touching but sweet story, don't you think? Even sorceresses have their work cut out for them. They try to find the job they love, they lose the people closest to them, and get their hearts broken in the process. But just like you and me, they do their best to keep on going. It helps that they have others to hold their hands along the way. When I first read this one, I remember pretty much getting a sugar rush from the pros and getting really, really thirsty, hoping for a bottle of rum. Now, I just want to kiss my wife and kids and hold them all tight. I think I might just go wake them up in a few minutes, take them out on our floating pirate ship so we can overlook the golems and pirates and mermaids and the sugarcane fields below. Ah, island life. Also, can I just say how nice it is to hear Rachel's voice back at Podcastle again? Thanks very much for reading this one for us, Rachel. Okay, let's do some feedback for Podcastle 111 or 111. Amal El Motars and their lips rang with the sun, read by N.K. Jemison. A love story between servants of the sun and the moon that was generally well received by our listeners. The newly said, there have been podcastle stories in the past that have been so beautiful I've shed a tear, but this one for some reason really did it for me. I like the narration style, it feels a bit like eavesdropping on an interesting conversation. There was one element that I kept thinking about. I've always associated women with the moon and men with the sun. The complete opposite from this story. 
I also have to add one more thing. The reading was spectacular. Such a smooth, almost hypnotic and velvet voice that went perfectly with the story. I could almost taste the spicy tea. Kibitzer said, a beautiful story, loved it. The world and beliefs were really well realized without even needing to fully explain them. They were revealed naturally as the story progressed. Just lovely. There was an interesting discussion on our forum about Lam's physical strength and whether she was threatening her son at the story's end or her lover toward the story's middle. Both Amal El-Motar and N.K. Jemison dropped by our forum to give their perspectives and it led to an interesting discussion. I know our audience loves to hear the authors of PodCastle, so if you want to read more about the story or the discussions on any of our other stories, or, you know, pretty much anything else, drop by forum.escapeartist.net to check it out. If you want to tell a certain sorcerer or sorceress, namely the ones at PodCastle, how much you care, please consider going to podcastle.org and making a donation. We don't have a magical sugar plantation powered by golem workers, although, damn, I'm really going to have to ask Anna to get on that. But we do have stories, and we want to continue to be able to bring them to you every week. So please, if you have a few bucks you can throw our way, it will make our authors incredibly happy, and it will keep our floating castle from grinding to a halt. Thank you. That's all we have for now, my hearties. From all of us here at PodCastle, thank you very much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back before week's end with the thrilling new piratical Podcastle miniature. So drink up me hearties, yo-ho. And next week, we'll be back to explore the effects of butterflies and hurricanes from a slightly different point of view with Genevieve Valentine's story, Bespoke. Until then, make sure you hug that special sorcerer or sorceress in your life. Tell them how much you love them. And we'll see you all in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. William Shakespeare said these high, wild hills and rough, uneven ways draw out our miles and make them wearisome. But yet your fair discourse hath been a sugar, making the hard way sweet and delectable.